You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. So a prior pastor of mine mentioned before a mission moment got started that uh, missions is the lifeblood of the church. I think he's right about that. Just as the blood in our body goes from our heart to every part of our body and comes back, so in missions we send out missionaries. They bring spiritual nourishment all over the world, and then it comes back to us in the form of mission moments and videos so missions can't be underestimated. It's extremely important that we support it, that we pray for our missionaries. So I'm glad that we have these moments to uh, see beyond just where we're at, to see what's going on in other parts of the world. Thank you, magicians. Ma- not magicians. We're going to be talking about magicians today. Thank you, musicians. <laughs> they do sometimes perform magic in a special sort of way. Thank you for bringing us the music. Yes, I've been thinking about magicians all week because we're going to be talking about the Egyptian magicians. So as we dive into Exodus chapter 7, let's begin with a word of prayer. And Lord, we thank you that we can come today to worship, to sing wonderful songs, to listen to what you're doing in the lives of missionary families as they're going into various parts of the world to bring the gospel of grace and truth, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that they might have the hope that we have, the hope of eternity, salvation, because you have given us these wonderful promises, and we can hold on to those promises as being true, being relevant, being personal, being filled with life. Lord, we want to let go of the things that would block our relationship with you, and as we'll study today, one of those big things is pride. Lord, you are constantly working in each one of us to make us grow, deepen in our faith, have a better, steadier walk, and also to get rid of those prideful elements that would block a perfect, loving relationship with you, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we look into this aspect of the Exodus story, I pray that there's many things we can pull from it, not only through this sermon time, but also in our private study and reflection. Lord, we thank you for giving us the Holy Word, giving us this church building, a time to assemble, freedom to do so without the threat of persecution. We pray for those areas of the world that are under the threat of persecution, and yet the believers still meet because they want to worship you. So whether we're being persecuted or whether we're not, Lord, we come here with hearts of faith, wanting to turn over our minds and our hearts to you so that you can fill it up with the good things. So, Lord, be with us as we study. Be with us in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you know anything about C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia story, then you'll be familiar with the story I'm about to tell you. If not, then I'll try to give you enough details of what, what the story is about. He wrote seven of these books, and one of the books is The Horse and His Boy. It's my personal favorite. Not only have I read the stories for years upon years, but I also have the audio, and so I will listen to it quite a bit. I can almost just memorize it because of how often I've heard it. So in The Horse and His Boy, we meet up with a young lad named Shasta, 
who is a slave in a country called Kalorman. Of course, he wants to be free, but he doesn't know anything about the free land of Narnia to the north. So he doesn't really know how to escape. He doesn't know how to get out of his predicament until he meets a horse named Bree. And in the land of Narnia, the animals can talk. They can think. And so he meets a horse named Bree, and Bree also wants to escape because he was captured, kidnapped as a foal, brought to this country of Kalorman. They both need each other, but they both want to escape, and they realize this is our time. If we work together, we might be able to get through, to get to the land of Narnia, to get to the land of freedom. So they decide to do that. They pull their efforts together, and they leave at midnight or in the dark so that they have a chance to escape. And that's where the adventures begin. Now, they have many adventures along the way. They meet another person, a young girl, and another talking horse who are also trying to escape. So as a foursome, they're making their way north. Now, they have to go through the the capital city of Tashban, which is the capital of Kalorman. It is where the king resides and his sons. It is the seat of power. It is pretty much the seat of kind of the slave bureaucracy that's going on there. And they know they have to get through the city in order to pass through the desert, in order to get to the land of freedom. And it's in the city that they learn that a prince there, a proudful prince, wants to marry the, the queen of Narnia, Susan. She's very beautiful, lovely, but he's a proud, luxurious, uncaring sort of man, so she wants nothing to do with him, but he doesn't care. He just wants her, so what he wants, he's going to get, because that's what pride tends to do to us. It reduces our ability to reason well, and we think only about ourselves, not about others. So for him, he has a plan in place. I'm going to get Queen Susan for my wife more like a slave. So he convinces his father, the king, to get him or to, to allow him to have a small army, a contingent of about 200 uh, soldiers so that they can go get Susan after she gets off the ship because they were visiting. Susan was visiting Kalorman, and that's when she decided she didn't want anything to do with the prince. He's going to go get her, kidnap her, bring her back and marry her. So it's a prideful plan, only thinking about himself. Well, Shasta gets wind of the story. Now he's involved in trying to deliver the message to the king of Arkenland, where he's from, so that they can protect Susan. And so the story continues on, and towards the end, the prince, his name is Rabadash, well, his plan doesn't really work out. He's trying to kidnap Susan, but because Shasta delivered the message, the army of Narnia is waiting, there's a battle, Narnia decimates uh, the barbarians, and Rabadash, the prideful prince, is now in chains. He's captured, he's in chains, and he is before the good kings who are trying to show him some mercy. And they're telling him, we understand that you grew up in the land of slavery. You think you get anything you want, but we're going to show you mercy. We have a right to kill you for what you tried to do, kidnapping our queen. We have a right to kill you, but we want to show you mercy. Well, he's not going to have any of it. Now, he's in chains. He has no place to speak. And yet he's hurling insults at these kings, and they're trying to reason through with them. But pride tends to make us not be reasonable people. And so finally, Aslan shows up. And Aslan, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia story, is Jesus Christ. Aslan shows up to talk with Prince Rabadash to give him one more chance 
at mercy. And he tells Rabadash, your doom is very near. Forget your pride. What have you to be proud of? And forget your anger. Who has done you wrong? And accept the mercy of these good kings. Well, now Rabadash starts hurling insults at Aslan, and finally, in order to humble the guy, he turns Rabadash into a donkey. He sobers him up quickly that way. He still has the mind of a man, but the, the form of a donkey. And finally, Rabadash, well, he can't say anything. He can only bray. And so finally, he shuts up and listens. It's amazing what pride will do to the human heart. That's why C.S. Lewis worked this part of the story into his book. Pride does something to us, and it makes us less human than we should be. Pride is the enemy of us all. It's not just for princes. It's not just for rulers like Pharaoh. It's not just for the high and mighty. Every single person on earth struggles with pride in one form or another. Maybe not at the national level, but even the little things we can get prideful over. And what we're going to see as we study Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 20, is how the pride of one man is going to lead to the ruin of an entire country. But we're also going to see a God who loves his creation so much that he gives that creation time and again the chance to turn around. God of mercy, he doesn't want us to go down the route of pride And yet human pride can sometimes overwhelm our common sense and also overwhelm our concern and care for others. So Exodus chapter 7 is where we come to the very first plague of the 10 plagues that we know so well through the Bible story. Before we start in verse 14, I'm going to start in verse 11 to give us some context. So I'm going to read 11 through 13. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Moses and Pharaoh are in the royal court, or I'm sorry, Moses and Aaron are in the royal court of Pharaoh because God told them to go there. And God told them that Pharaoh is going to ask you for a miracle, for a sign. So Moses and Aaron are prepared for what's going to happen. And God told them, when Pharaoh asks you for a sign, throw down your staff. So that's what they do. Moses and Aaron are following through with the script that God had told them would happen. So the script is actually unfolding right before their eyes. And so Aaron's staff is now transforms into this snake-like creature. And I call it that because the Hebrew word for snake isn't this word. There's about 15 instances of this word in the Old Testament. And the other, the other uh, translations have dragon, has sea monster, so this is not quite like the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille type of bull snake that emerges and slithers. This is a different sort of creature, and we don't even quite know what it is. Think more like a, a huge lizard or some monstrous thing that you don't really interact or see. That seems to be what is conveyed here. So that's what it turns into. Well, the magicians 
come with their staffs, and they toss their staffs down, and it gets transformed into the same thing. Okay, well, before you get impressed with what the Egyptian magicians can do, let me pause and say that Satan, who's working through these magicians, is a copycat. That's all he can do. There's a real limitation to Satan's powers. Don't think of him as the other side of the force, and you always have to keep the force in balance, and he has all this power just like God does. He doesn't. He's a dog on a leash. And it can be a very short leash, and God knows how to snap it back. The only thing Satan can do is copy. He is not an original thinker. He cannot create. He can only mimic. So it's not surprising that he mimics what God does. That's all he can do. And after he mimics, he manipulates. And after he manipulates, he breaks the very thing that he made. That's all Satan can do, and that's all we see him doing. So the magicians throw down their staffs. It becomes a copycat antic of what Aaron's staff is. And you would think, if Satan was trying to show his muscle, that he would have all of these creatures gain up on Aaron's staff. They don't even do that. They don't even try to scurry away. Apparently, they just stand there waiting to be gobbled up. And that's exactly what happens. So do we get impressed with the magician's secret arts? What's there to be impressed about? Pharaoh should have been impressed with something else. Pharaoh should have said, God just fired a warning shot across my bow. My magicians can do all of these things, but it doesn't last. Not in the face of God's real power. And Pharaoh is watching all of his creatures get swallowed by God's creatures. That would have been a time to say, I think this God is telling me that he's a powerful God, and no matter what I do, he will overwhelm me. Let me see if I can make a deal, a pact, an agreement with this God, and not force my way through this. But he doesn't, because human pride doesn't let go of our agendas and desires so easily. And it's unfortunate because he's about to plunge his nation into economic, societal, spiritual ruin because of his pride. So that's setting the stage for what's about to happen. God has given Pharaoh plenty of opportunities to turn around, repent, let the people go. And had he done that, I'm guessing God would have blessed the Egyptians in some way. Don't really know that. But had he shown mercy to the Israelites, at least all of this, the ten plagues wouldn't have happened. But he didn't want to go that far because he didn't want to let go of his pride. But as we will soon see, pride is the enemy of us all. So now we go into the plague of blood, the very first plague. Let me read verses 14 and 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you to say, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. 
The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Back in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron show up to Pharaoh's court for the very first time. They come out of the desert of Midian. They're in Pharaoh's court and they make a request. And we've already studied this, but I'll go back and recap. They make a simple request to Pharaoh. Please let God's people go for a three-day journey into the wilderness so that we can worship him. Otherwise, God will send plagues on us. That's how they say it. They don't say to Moses, God is going to plague you if you don't let us go. Moses says, God will plague us if you don't let us go. So Pharaoh has no, no reason to fear this God. He simply needs to follow the common practices of the day and, and let the slaves go to worship their God. In fact, in the ancient Near East, often you wanted the other gods to look favorably upon you. That's why they had so many gods, gods for this and that, gods for animals and gods for seasons and gods for natural phenomena. And you tried to appease every god so you would get them on your side. So your crops would grow well, so that your animals would calve out, so that your children would grow up well. Why is Pharaoh so resistive of this God? I think we have a good idea why. This is the God of truth. So Pharaoh isn't going to let the Hebrews go. And that's what we read in chapter 5. And then, because of his pride, his pride leads to anger, and he tells the Hebrews, no, I think you're lazy, get back to your work. In fact, I am not going to give you the straw you need to make bricks. Now, I mentioned that pride can reduce our ability to reason through things. It, it takes away our common sense. What do I mean by that? Did Pharaoh really think that the Hebrew slaves wanted straw? Why would they? The Hebrews don't want to make bricks. Well, why not? Because they don't want to build Pharaoh's buildings. Well, why not? Because they don't want to glorify Pharaoh. They're slaves. And Pharaoh says, get back to your work. I'm a slave. This isn't work like I'm getting paid for it. I'm a slave and I'm trying to get out of this. But Pharaoh doesn't realize that. All he can think is, well, I'm going I'm to hurt these people. They're not trying to work. They want to worship their God. No, they're not going to do it. So I'm going to make their life hard. Their life was already hard with cruel oppression. He's going to make it harder. This is the last straw for the Hebrews and for God. We have had enough of this, is what God is going to convey to Pharaoh. And yet, in the face of such wanton pride, God sometimes has to do dramatic things to wake us up, which is what we're going to see with the first plague. Now Moses and Pharaoh are back in the court of Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are now back in the court of Pharaoh. In fact, they're at the Nile as Pharaoh comes down for some uh, morning ritual at the Nile. And it's there that Moses and Aaron encounter Pharaoh. And they tell Pharaoh, here's what's going on. You will not listen. You will not let the people go. So by this, you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 17. With a staff in my hand, I will strike the water and it will be changed to blood. What God is doing through Moses is he's telling Moses, or God is telling Pharaoh, his strategy. He's also telling Pharaoh his tactic. Now, if you know anything about strategies and tactics, tactics are the things that usually are seen. Strategy is usually the thing you keep hidden. Think about two football teams. The different coaches are seeing each other's tactics. It's what happens on the play field. 
But it would be ridiculous before the game for one coach to say, oh, here's my strategy for beating you. Hey, what's your strategy? You don't say that. Your strategy is how you win. So you keep your strategy hidden, even though tactics tend to be the things that people see. Like, well, in the second quarter, we're going to have a passing game, and in the fourth quarter, we're going to have a, we're going to have a throwing game so that we can, so we can win this game. But you usually keep that hidden, but God doesn't do that here. God lays out for Pharaoh exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to do all of these things to you, Pharaoh, so that you know I am God. This is my game. We're going to play it my way, and I'm going to win. That's why God's not. That's why God doesn't have a problem revealing a strategy, because God always wins, and He's trying to give Pharaoh the opportunity to turn, to let the people go, and to save his nation. Because very soon the people are going to start to suffer, and Pharaoh won't even care. That's what pride does to the human heart. It reduces our ability to see clearly, and also reduces our ability to show concern and care. So, Moses, Aaron, they're down at the Nile. They tell Pharaoh what's about to happen. would be a great time for Pharaoh to come around and change and repent. They even go so far as to say, once this Nile river turns to blood... There won't be any fish. The river's going to stink. You won't be able to drink water. This is a serious calamity. Not having drinking water, serious issue. What does Pharaoh do? Doesn't take it into account, doesn't repent. So, beginning in verse 19, we're going to see exactly what happens. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Now let me pause for a moment, and let's unpack this the best we can. Sometimes... People reading this will say, well, the Nile River must have turned into something like blood. But there's no simile here in the plain reading of Scripture. And water, blood in the Old Testament is always blood. It's what's coursing through our veins. It never is taken as something like water or like a different substance. The best we can understand is that this is blood. What is coursing through your veins right now was what the Nile became, and not just the Nile. The Nile's big, and in just a minute I'll tell you about the importance of it. The Nile's huge, many tributaries, many streams, many canals that feed it, ponds and reservoirs so that people can get their drinking water. Vitally important to the culture of Egypt, and now it's blood, real blood. What does that mean for the Egyptians? Well, I don't know if you've ever spent time in a slaughterhouse or a meat locker. The smell is overpowering if you're in that place. Usually, unless you get desensitized to it, usually you're trying to get out. You know, it's just an overwhelming feeling of every breath I breathe, I'm breathing in this blood smell. It's not a smell that we would appreciate or like. And in America, we usually don't have to deal with it. In other countries, they slaughter animals all the time, so they're more used to it than we are. But they're not used to it at this level. The Nile is a broad river. It's one of the world's largest rivers, longest rivers, from Lake Victoria all the way down to the Nile Delta in the Mediterranean. There's a lot of river there, a lot of water. 
How important is it to the people? It's where they get their drinking water. It's where they get some of their food because they fish. Their agriculture depends upon the Nile because it waters the crops. And annually, there's this flooding of the Nile, so the ground-enriched silt flows over the crops, and the crops grow well. It forms their commerce, so you can sail down from one location to another. It forms their national identity. They deified it to such a degree that they had a god named Hapi, whom they worshipped in order to appease the Nile god so the Nile would flood at the appropriate time. It was everything to them. And their dependence upon it was essential. Now, water is one of those main ingredients for living, so you can't do without it. And that was the case for them. And by the way, it doesn't rain there. So they really depend upon this water. Human dependence upon water cannot be exaggerated. Three days without it and you die. Two days without it and you start to hallucinate and go through various uncomfortable things. We need it every single day of our lives. And not just us. The animals needed it. The crops needed it. Everything depends upon the Nile. One would think that a god who could strike the Nile in this way should be a god you listen to and appease and see what you can do to be on his good side. I imagine many of the Egyptians started to feel that way. There was only one person who was blocking progress. It was Pharaoh. Pride became not just his enemy, not just the enemy of the Israelites. It became the enemy of the Egyptians, too. That is how far-reaching human pride can be. So the Nile is now affected. And the effect is total, and it is complete. One would think that before the Nile actually became blood, if the day before you scooped out water in a wooden bucket and you took it home, and there it is, the water you're going to use for that day, and then the Nile is struck with blood, that water would be okay. That water is not okay. That water is filled with blood, or that bucket is filled with blood now. You can't use it. Maybe some of you have been without power for a while. Sometimes here in Colorado that happens in the hot summer or sometimes in the cold winter. We've had some power outages at our place, like everyone else. That might last hours or it might last a day or more. If you're not ready for it, you know, if you don't have water stored somewhere, then it becomes a hardship. And I'm sure you have all experienced what I've experienced, and that is, yeah, the power went out, okay. You flip on the water to wash your hands or get a drink, and it doesn't come on. Oh, yeah, we lost power. We depend upon the electricity that gives us water so much. And when we don't have it for a while, and for a while is a few hours, what starts to happen to our minds and hearts? We start to get desperate. <laughs> When's the power going to come on? You're calling the power company. When's it going to come on? Then we start thinking of other things. Do I need to leave my home and go into the city to get some more water? When is it going to be restored? In our country, it's usually restored within hours. But what if it wasn't restored for days? This plague of blood lasted seven days. How are the people surviving? They're getting desperate quickly. The wooden buckets, the stone jars, they're filled with blood. There's not a drop of water in sight. It's all blood. The fish rise up to the surface. They're dead because they can't swim in blood. It becomes a nightmare scene of desperation for water. It's a ghoulish landscape. It's something that would come out of a present-day horror movie, and they're experiencing it firsthand. 
they're experiencing the power of God, which would not have been unleashed had Pharaoh not become a humble man. But because he held on to that pride, he is affecting everyone. That's why it's everybody's enemy. It affects everyone. It's not just a personal issue. My pride affects others as well, as we're finding out through this story. So, verse 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised the staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Interestingly, the Israelites aren't brought into this description here. Were they suffering the way the Egyptians were suffering? We don't know, but it seems to suggest they're not part of the suffering because what we read is that the Egyptians couldn't drink the water, but we really don't know what's going on with the Israelites. What we do know is that the entire nation of Israel is now at a standstill. And I say that more as speculation, but here's why I say they're at a standstill. If everybody needs water, if the animals need water, if the crop needs water, what do you think the people are doing day in and day out? They're, they're getting water. That is their life now. No religious ceremonies, unless they're trying to overcome those. Uh, no day-to-day functioning that they would normally do. They're in survival mode, sustainment mode. Water is what we need, and that's all we can do, is get the water we need. You and I, as human beings, just living in Colorado, we need about two gallons of water per day just to live, you know, for drinking and sanitation. And that's just subsistence living. Generally, we need a lot more, especially if it's drier or if we're doing some exertion. These people, each person probably needs a good three to four gallons a day. That's every person. Now calculate the animals into that. And if you want to keep your crops alive, what are you going to have to do with them or with it? These people have come to an economic standstill as they're now they're scrounging for water because God has done this to the nation. This isn't a God to fool with, but this is also a God who gave them so many opportunities to let go of their pride and come to him seeking mercy blessing the Israelites and letting them go. Pride is such an enemy to each one of us. You and I aren't going to be at the level of Pharaoh, and we probably don't need to be, but national leaders tend to have issues with pride. They control a national budget. Some of them do. Uh, they, They control the military. They're always in the spotlight. They're always being seen and noticed. That's how our country tends to be politically. But it's also other countries, too. Leaders tend to struggle with pride. They're always on television. And so pride is a major issue for them. But pride's also a major issue for us. I remember the few times where I got a little prideful because I thought somebody was trying to do something that was going to go against my plan, my agenda. And you know, I was trying to stand up for myself. And it didn't go very well. I wish I had... So many of us feel like we're just going to lay down and be a doormat for somebody else. And that might be where we we bristle and we try to fight against the idea. And, And maybe there's a place for standing up for yourself. But it's a rather short walk from that to 
being prideful and saying, no, this is my way and I know that this is the right way. It can happen at work between coworkers uh, or between a boss and, and his subordinate. It oftentimes happens in a marriage. It can happen with parents and kids. It can happen with neighbors. It happens across the board. It is the very struggle that we have in this life is getting rid of the pride that's in our heart. And if you're afraid that if you do that, you're going to get walked over, ask yourself what would be the alternative. Hold on to my pride. Demand to have my way. And then ask yourself, is it better to be humble or is it better to be prideful? If you find yourself in a position of pride and you're just going to have a hard time letting it go, I understand. It's a monumental challenge trying to eat humble pie. If, if you have dipped into pride and people think you're throwing your weight around, I would say walk back as quickly as you can to the side of pride. It's going to help you. It's going to help everyone. And nobody likes to eat crow. But in the words of one wise woman, if you have to eat crow, it's best to eat it fresh. Do it as fast as you can. Try to get as humble as, you, as fast as you can and not hold on to the pride because it always leads to disaster, ruin. Spiritual ruin can re- lead to other things as well. Pride is the enemy of us all. And as we're going to see very soon, it's the Egyptians' enemies too. Pharaoh's pride is going to cause the Egyptians to have so much hardship in their lives. Verse 22, 22 through 25. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. This is what I mean by the Egyptians now struggling because of Pharaoh's pride. They're digging in the dirt to find clean water. That's a lot of hardship for these people. But I also see God's grace in it. God could have struck the water under the earth with the same pollution that he struck the Nile River, but he didn't. That's where you get the clean water. God is giving grace to these people in the midst of the plague. You have a way out. You can keep yourselves alive. It's going to be a lot of work for the next week. You can keep yourselves alive if you dig. That's all they did all day in order to keep themselves alive. But it's God's mercy keeping them alive so that they might turn and repent and let the Israelites go. Let's look at Pharaoh. His heart becomes hard. I I don't know, personally, I don't know who I'm more upset with, Pharaoh or the magicians. It's Pharaoh's pride that has caused this, but the magicians are adding fuel to the fire. They are enabling him to continue down this path of pride. What if the Egyptians told Pharaoh this? You know, Pharaoh, we just copy what their God does. That's all we can do is copy. You know, it would be more impressive, Pharaoh, if we could change the blood back into water, but we don't have that type of power. It would probably be pretty good if you recognize that the Hebrews' God is God and let go of your pride. You can't necessarily say that, but it would have been helpful if they ventured out and were that courageous. It would have saved them from experiencing the other nine plagues because the other nine plagues were not a foregone conclusion. 
We'll see that in the next plague next week when we read about Moses once again telling Pharaoh, let my people go. He's giving him another chance. Okay, that's next week. Right now, they're dealing with this issue of blood in the river and what is Pharaoh's heart going to become, harder or softer? The magicians make it harder because they prove they can do the same thing, but it proves nothing, except that they can pollute their own water. But that's not going to help the situation. Why don't they provide real help? It's because they're incapable of doing that, because the prideful heart is incapable of doing that. So now the Egyptian people, the common people, are digging to get the water they need. What we're going to see in the upcoming weeks is how Pharaoh continues to go down this path of hardness of heart, and it has become such a mode of operation for him that God now starts to harden his heart. It started with Pharaoh. He could have turned many times. But we reach a point where God will say, if this is what you want, I'm going to give you what you want so that my glory will be proved through you. Because Pharaoh's heart is hard, he is in denial. If you're familiar with counseling or psychology, you know that there's something called the stages of grief or the stages of trauma. And there's five stages. There's denial, there's anger, there's bargaining, there's depression, and then there's acceptance. If you've lost a loved one, you have gone through stages of grief, or if you've gone through some traumatic episode, you have most likely gone through some or all of those. Pharaoh is in a state of denial here. How do we know that? He sees what's going on, he hears Moses and Aaron, he turns, and he walks back into his palace. He's not even trying to help his own people. He just doesn't seem to care. He is so hooked into his prideful attitude that he has lost common sense, the ability to reason. He's not even concerned about the care and concern for his own Egyptian people. He just turns and walks away. Pharaoh has demonstrated already anger. We're going to see very quickly that he's going to try to bargain with God. He's going through the stages of trauma here. He just doesn't know it yet. He's in denial. And that's where he's going to stay, to the ruin of his people, but also to the glory of God. Pride is the enemy of us all. Do what you can to avoid it. If you're not in a prideful situation, praise the Lord. Don't go in that direction. Humility is the antidote to pride. If you're in that situation, do what you can to go back into the area of humility. It is where we meet with God. I quoted from C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Horse and His Boy. We're going to end with another quote from C.S. Lewis, but not from his Chronicles of Narnia, but rather from his book, Mere Christianity. Miriam, go ahead. So let me read it for us. This is what Lewis says. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And I think he has hit it right on the head. Let us not give in to pride. Let us be humble like Moses and Aaron 
and watch God do an amazing work, not only in our lives, but our families, and even in our nation. Let's pray. God, these are, these are hard things to read, because watching you enact your plagues and your, your devastation is not an easy read. In fact, you don't even want to do it. In Isaiah 28, we read that this type of work is your strange work. It's not the work you want to do. You want to redeem. You want to show compassion and mercy. It is who you are. Lord, I pray that if we find ourselves in the midst of pride, that we get out of it, that we walk like Christ, that we take in mercy and compassion. Even if there's the fear of being walked over, Lord, you know how to work on our behalf. We don't need to worry about that. Lord, help us not to be your enemy by giving into pride, but give into humility and to be your friend. It's what Christ did when he died on the cross. It's what we want to do as well in our daily walk. So, Lord, give us the strength to make that walk and make it with boldness, courage, faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for the word that you provide for us. Hard lessons like this sometimes have to be heard just so that we can make those important corrections and glorify others. We pray all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.